COVID-19 has had many, many unintended consequences, specifically for many charities uh, across the country. We've talked about food banks. We've talked about how fundraising has been impacted. One of the impacts that is far-reaching has been the increase in domestic violence. Joining us now, Executive Director from the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence, NMCADV, is Pam Weisman. Pam, thank you so much for taking the time today. Yes, thanks, Jared. No problem. Happy to be here. So I've seen stories nationally about how lockdowns have been uh, have increased domestic violence, uh, where people there's nowhere to go, there's no one. You have to be at home with potentially your abuser. Um, is that right. been the case? Have you been seeing that here in New Mexico? We, we depending on uh, where you are in New Mexico, we've seen increases, we've seen decreases, we've seen the incidents uh, remain the same. Uh, in some places, though, what we're hearing is that the violence uh, is worse, um, and that could be because, as you said, people aren't able to leave, they can't get away, they can't get help. Uh, I, I think calling the police has become more difficult. Police, um, obviously, they respond, but it's. I think it's different now than than maybe it it was before, at least in in, in some places. And so, um, and I think also the fact that there there's there's unemployment, um, there's all the stress of you know being um, not able to work or having to work. So all of that really begins to add up. And in some places, there's been kind of a remarkable increase, really, in the reports of violence. We also think that lots of people aren't reporting it. So there's probably a lot going on that nobody knows about because people aren't calling um, the way they might have in the past. Do people have the same resources right now to escape domestic violence? So um, I, I'm, in some cases, I'm certain that they don't, right? Um, there, there always have been people who are able to escape. They can drive someplace. They can get a, you know, on an airplane. They can travel. And all of that has been made more difficult. You know, we have quarantine orders. And all of that, I think, for some people makes it more difficult. The good news, though, is that all of our programs uh, have been able to keep really all of their services. All 32 across the entire state are not only uh, doing what they've always done, but they're doing, in lots of cases, more of it. So according to Children, Youth, and Families Department, which is the organization that runs these programs, uh, there has been uh, an increase in asking uh, for help and for services. So all of the online uh, sort of stuff has really worked, I think, for our programs to reach people that they never had before. So I, I want to say this early, um, and we'll hit it throughout the interview, nmcadv.org, if you would like to help out the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence. If you would like to donate, if you would like to um, become an advocate, those ways. And if you're in a situation um, that you need to escape from, uh, Pam Wiseman, how do, what, what do you tell people in that situation? 
So uh, first, just in terms of contact, uh, there is a national domestic violence hotline. And if you call that number, they have you could say where you are in the state and they can find the place nearest you. And that number is um, 800-799-7233. There's also a New Mexico crisis line, and that number is 855-662-7474. Or again, they can go uh, to our website, and we have a list of all the programs across the state and the contact numbers, so they can, um, you can get it that way also. I would also say that um, if... Lots of people have expressed concern about coming into shelters. They they don't know whether they should be more afraid of uh, COVID or of domestic violence, and that's completely understandable. But I just would like people who are thinking about how to get out to know that uh, our programs uh, know how to to work. Uh, safely. Um, and they can, you know, we have alternate sites where we're uh, able to put uh, people. So there are lots of ways that our programs are keeping their staff and our uh, clients safe. So just call and, uh, and and they can, you know, work through any concerns people have. So I wouldn't want that to be a barrier because I don't think it needs to be. One of the things that I, I, been doing this a long time, done a lot of interviews around this. It it feels like um, the cause that you're fighting for is one that doesn't seem because the factors for why people don't come forward remain the same. It doesn't feel like uh, a problem that one day we're going to get to a place where just everybody feels comfortable to leave relationships. Can you talk some about why domestic violence is so complicated, those factors that prevent people from coming forward? Of course. I think um, most people wonder why someone would stay in an abusive relationship, right? They think to themselves, if that was me, I, I would have gotten out, you know, a long time ago. But I think what but the, what COVID has exposed, just like you said, um, is the way things have really always been for lots of, of victims of violence. And that is they have to constantly weigh the life risks versus the risks of being in an abusive um, environment. And so uh, COVID is a perfect example. Do I expose myself and my children Uh, Or do I stay and try to manage? And lots of people who are in abusive relationships have done that for a long time. They they know how to keep themselves and their children safe while staying with people who are abusive. So um, there people are smart like that. The other the other issue is in terms of kind of a life risk and how people think about this is the court system. Uh, you know, for example, um, if you were, you know, if you were going to testify against a mobster or something, right, they would give you a false identity and, you know what I mean, have, have right. armed guards work. But that's not the case in domestic violence. They say, come in, tell us everything he did. And, you know, um, and we're probably not going to keep him. We're going to let him go. And so um, 
in in terms of safety, there really isn't very much for people. And so, of course, they don't come forward because it's risky. So, again, you know, people who are victims of violence are constantly weighing all those risks and trying to decide what is the safest and best thing to do. And domestic violence, I think most people, and because it's predominantly physical abuse, can you talk about some of the other kinds of abuse that would be a part of the blanket of yeah. domestic violence? Right. There, there are all kinds of uh, forms of abuse. Uh, one which has been made worse by this pandemic is isolation. So uh, people who are abusive, for obvious reasons, want to be able to uh, keep control of the information that victims get. They want them to not be... Um, uh, talking very much to friends and relatives. They try to separate them. They say things like, uh, you can't, you know, trust anyone but me. Those people don't have your best interests at heart. So if someone is going to be able to control somebody else, they need to control the information. They need to, con you know, control who they associate with and they need to, um, keep them thinking that there is no life and there's no hope outside of that person. Um, that, that probably is the most, you know, I, I would say common and they, uh, and then they blame victims get blamed for the abuse that they suffer. And, and some of them think maybe it is my fault. Maybe I shouldn't have done those things or said the thing that I did. And so they're all a variety really of, of tactics that people who are abusive use. And I think it's important to point out that that comes, you know, often, maybe not always, but often out of insecurity um, because people who are abusive are afraid, right? That if they let up control, if they don't sit hard on someone, that that person's going to get up and leave. Uh, and so that, I think, accounts for a lot of why um, people who are abusive engage in some of those behaviors. We're speaking with executive director of the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence, Pam Wiseman. Uh, can you talk to me about, we've addressed the people who may be in an abusive situation. How do I, as a person in a healthy relationship, watch for warning signs from my friends and loved ones for their relationships? Yeah. So that's really hard because uh, people are pretty good at masking that. And I can't tell you the number of people that, you know, we have spoken with over the years who had no idea, people who were working in our organizations, right, who no one would have had the slightest idea uh, might actually be uh, being abused. So people are pretty good at keeping that secret. That's one of the biggest barriers to being able to, uh, for us, to doing something about domestic violence, um, and that is for people to um, to be able to recognize it. One of the things we know is that in communities where violence is not something that is tolerated, where people say, no, we don't do that here, that violence is much reduced. It really is the key. Community intolerance is the key. The problem is, as you just, you know, suggested that the communities don't understand it uh, often and we need to do a better job of educating them and they don't 
necessarily know what to look for. But things like, you know, maybe being absent from work, um, seeming to be sick all the time, um, changes in behavior. Uh, oftentimes, victims will protect the person who's abusing them. Um, and, and, and many times they don't want someone to interfere because they think it might make it worse. And in fact, it could, right? So again, I think uh, people who are being abused are pretty good uh, about knowing how to protect themselves because they've been doing it. Yeah. So when we're talking about victims, it's predominantly women. Um, I've heard that it's 85% women and that it is about 15% of people in domestic violence situations are men. Is that the case in New Mexico? Um, it's something like that. I think the the lifetime prevalence is something like one in three women and one in seven men, something like that. Although when it comes to, to statistics in domestic violence, again, because it's so secret often and uh, people we don't know for sure. We can't really say with certainty what the incidence is, but it's something like that. Wow. So one in three women in their lifetime will be the victim. Of... Yes. And, uh -huh. and one in seven. That's an astounding number. I, I, I had no idea it was it was that high. Yeah, it's we think it's probably higher even than that. I mean, domestic violence, I, I think it's less common now, perhaps I'm hoping. Right. COVID notwithstanding. Um, but it's. It's not like, oh, only a couple of people every year are affected by it. It's really, it's a fairly common, almost culturally accepted and expected um, kind of phenomena. And when we talk about, you mentioned culturally is one of the best ways to sort of end domestic violence. In the, New Mexico is very tribal in its cultures, in Hispanic cultures are very hold on to it, um, the African-American culture, the New Mexico heritage culture. Have you found yeah. that certain cultures in New Mexico um, have done a better job or that certain cultures have are holding on to domestic violences uh, historically? Um, I don't know if if really how much difference there is. I, I do know that. Um, uh, are, are sort of in Native American communities historically, right? Not perhaps today, but historically, um, we're really about communities holding people accountable. That's that's how things worked. And that was, I think, largely successful. So in lots of places, that's how it was. The community would say, would find out that someone was abusing their, you know, their partner, their wife, whatever, and they would step in. And that seemed to be an effect a fairly effective way of doing things. And I think, you know, and then over the years, we became so focused on the criminal justice system and arresting people and putting them in jail or, um, and it just didn't really work. Um, for example, the, you know, dismissal rate in the state of New Mexico, I mean, the number of cases that just get dismissed, the prosecutor says I don't have enough evidence or whatever, is like it's like 80 percent. Right. So most cases never go anywhere. And the conviction rate for those that do is only 8%. So the criminal justice system is just we're, we're slowly coming to understand it's just not 
really the answer. However, we do know that people need to be held accountable. Um, when someone is not is let's say caught, arrested or whatever, and gets away with it, is not held accountable in any way, doesn't have to be jail, but there's somehow, there's a message that that person gets that, well, don't worry about it. Then violence gets worse, right? You're better off never arresting anyone at all than to arrest them and say, don't worry about it. Um, it's called punishment avoidance. It's a psychological principle that violence gets worse when it's allowed to happen. So I think now as a as an entire field we're thinking about this right what what is the what is the real way and I think we're beginning to lean towards prevention educating communities and creating that kind of environment we're speaking with Pam Wiseman. She's the executive director of NMCADV, the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence, online, nmcadv.org. Um, you put out a message uh, last month about uh, Black Lives Matter and mm -hmm. uh, the mm -hmm. relationship with NMCADV. Mm -hmm. One of yeah. the tenets of the Black Lives Matter movement is a restructuring of police intervention, what would that That's look right. like for domestic violence intervention? Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, and I think those conversations are still young, but I think what, but especially for, um, uh, black women, um, it has been the criminal justice system has just not worked for them either because they don't want their partners to go to jail because it's dangerous um, because they themselves wind up being arrested. It just hasn't really worked. And I think for, you know, 20 or 30 years, we just put all our eggs in that basket. Let's train law enforcement. Let's let's be criminal justice system oriented. And I think the Black Lives Matter movement and the and and Black women are saying uh, this isn't working, and we need to have something else happen. And I think we're all starting to listen. So and I know that one that domestic violence is brought up often in terms of is the best response in a situation to have armed police officers respond to something and that domestic violence is one of those situations that I often hear brought up of yeah. would would it improve the situation if we had trained counselors who could arrive do you think that we would see an increase in arrests and prosecutions in a situation like that or a, an increase in resolutions you know, in some places, right, they do both. Uh, for example, uh, programs in Albuquerque and, and, and around the state and around the country. So uh, the police may be called and um, an advocate, a domestic violence advocate is there too. And the domestic violence advocate talks to the victim and gives her resources and helps her to get set up with, you know, whatever help she might need um, while the police deal with a person who is uh, the abuser. And that seems to be a fairly good model. Um, I don't know. I've heard it. I've heard both things uh, expressed. Right. Is it would it really be safe for the police not to be there? Um, I have friends who are police officers who um, are saying there are a lot of guns out there. And guns, by the way, are certainly the leading cause of death for victims of domestic violence in this state and, and elsewhere. So these are really complicated issues. 
really complicated. And the entire field of domestic violence has to shift and I think is shifting to think about what do we really need to do. Um, I, I worked for many years as a counselor for domestic violence offenders in groups. I did that for 12 years. And uh, they uh, the things that moved them to want to change were it doesn't have to be this way. Your children are suffering and help is available. So I think um, accountability, but along with compassion for people is probably uh, better, you know, uh, in the long run, most of the time. So if somebody's listening, um, they're in a healthy relationship, but um, they're, they would like to get involved with your organization, what are some of the ways that they can get involved um, and participate with uh, yeah. NMCADV? I know, it's so hard to I'm say. Sorry, it's, I, I, <laughs> it's okay. No, it's hard to say. I, I agree with you. Um, so I, I would say that, you know, again, we have, there are 32 domestic violence programs all around the state, and they uh, need volunteers to do all kinds of things, right? Uh, fundraising, perhaps uh, being trained to respond to the crisis line, perhaps uh, working with children. There, there are lots and lots of ways uh, to get involved. Um, and all they really have to do is call and, and say that. And the other, um, our programs need uh, funding. They need food. Um, they, they need donations of all kinds. And so that's, that's also um, an important way that, that people can help. How has COVID affected, um, I'm sure even people volunteering to man some of the crisis lines is difficult or uh, how has that impacted your um, efforts? Yeah. So um, programs, uh, what, what we have found, we, we did just a little, the Legislative Finance Committee asked us just to look at a few programs. We looked at four programs in, in different regions around the state and how much uh, sort of over what they were planning to spend, they've had to spend to deal with uh, COVID, whether it's um, hazard pay or PPE or, uh, you know, putting people in hotels, whatever that is. And um, when we extrapolated that out, it, it's, you know, our programs uh, in, a, in a poor state had to, you know, are ha going to have to spend by the time, you know, by the time the year is over, six, seven million dollars, right, which they don't have. So it, it's been really expensive. And, uh, and that on top of that, right, they're not doing fundraisers. They're not doing, you know, a dance. They're not doing a dinner. They're not all the, all the, you know, they're not, they're thrift stores, which is a source of income for lots of them are not open, um, in many cases. So, uh, they have, they're suffering from both things being really much more expensive and a loss of, of revenue. Can you talk to me about some of the, you guys have some programs that I've found very interesting for the NMCADV. Um, uh, can you talk to me maybe about uh, either the Children's Project and some of those other 
programs? Sure. Yeah. So uh, in, I guess it was 2014, um, there were only, I think, nine programs out of the 32 or 33 that had children's services. Um, And of those that did, they didn't really have models. They just sort of did the best they could. And that was a lack of resources. So um, Senator Nancy Rodriguez, uh, who's in the sort of Santa Fe area, and I had a conversation about that. And uh, she ensured that there was money in the state budget, and I guess it was 2014, so that we could give that money to programs to hire train and support children's services. And we were able to do that. And we had some national level research uh, done in New Mexico. And what we found was that um, the the reduction, the, the, the strengthening of the of the parenting was really high. Ninety percent of uh, victims of domestic violence felt that they were better at keeping themselves safe and their children safe. We found it made an unbelievable difference in the whole organization. And so then over the years, we got a little bit more. And this year, it looks like um, there'll be a total of maybe a million dollars in investment in working with children. So, And that project was... I mean, everyone did something different. In, for example, Nambe Pueblo, the children um, constructed what they called a fairy village, um, just from, you know, popsicle sticks or whatever. They created a little town um, that would be that was safe for people and happy. Um, and it was and it was wonderful. So so kids were learning about what a safe community would look like. Some did art therapy. Some worked with uh, horses. Uh, some worked with dogs. There was there was all kinds of really creative work being done and still being done um, through that project. Can you also talk to me about the companion animal rescue effort? Cleverly named yeah, Care. That, yeah. Care cleverly named. So um, that's the that happened at the same time. And again, it was Senator Nancy Rodriguez. Um, we wanted to be able to. We knew that victims of domestic violence, something like seventy percent, said that they hesitated to leave because they had pets. We knew that pets were um, also being abused, and so we wanted to be able to um, provide a place for. Um, Victims of domestic violence who needed to come into shelter to to have their pets be in a safe place. So we worked with Animal Animal Protection New Mexico. We still work with them, uh, and they, you know, if if a if a victim needs a place for her animal, and they'll take all kinds of animals. They'll take horses. That they'll take pigs. They'll take you know anything, um, and and they'll find a foster uh, family for those animals until that person. Um, has a more permanent place to live. So that's really important. It's especially important for kids, right, who it's hard enough for them to have to leave their homes. Um, but when they have to leave their animals, um, that's that's really hard. So um, that program is continuing, too. And actually, I've never thought about I know that one of the reasons that um, people who are unhomed sometimes don't go into shelters is because they have a pet and they can't go with them. It never even occurred to me that they'd be the same in a domestic violence situation. 
Yes, right. And some of our shelters have, um, in addition to, to using Animal Protection New Mexico, they've built kennels on site um, or they found other ways to make sure that people don't have that. That's not one more barrier for people. So I want to break it down into two categories again, just as, as we kind of wrap up. If someone wants to get involved with the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence, NMCADV, um, if they want to donate or if they want to uh, man the phones, what is their best way to get involved? Um, I think they should uh, they could go to our website, uh, nmcadv.org. Find the program that's nearest them and simply call them and say, I would like to get involved. Um, I, I think that's probably the best way. Or they can call us and say, I'd like to get involved. And uh, we can direct them or give them some ideas. And if they and, and then there's the uh, domestic violence hotline, the national domestic violence hotline. That number is also on our website if, uh, if people need to... Uh, find a, a program uh, quickly. They can also find that on our website. And if somebody is in a situation where they either think it's not that bad or they think that it's, you know, something that they're that's manageable, what would you say to a listener who's in a situation that they should probably leave and might not even be aware of how bad it is? Um, I guess I would say uh, that often victims of domestic violence know best. Um, they, they do know what kind of danger and risk they're assuming and they've thought about it. But sometimes maybe that isn't the case. And so I would say if they could call one of our programs, our programs know really well they're experts in um, assessing risk and danger and uh, resources and how to get help. So just just talking it over with an advocate or a counselor would be a great first step. Pam Wiseman, Executive Director of the NMCADV. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Yes, thank you. Appreciate it.